I said, hit the music, Abram. Are you going to play the music? Yeah, no, I heard you say hit the music. I'm having I'm having an issue. There it goes. Oh, okay. Oh. okay. Let's try that again. Ready? Okay. Go ahead. Hit the music, Abram. Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Monday, March 30th. Abram, I keep looking at this graphic on the New York Times homepage every day that shows where the most cases of COVID-19 are, and New York keeps shining brighter and brighter as the clear epicenter. And it's not just on the Times. Like we feel it, we feel it all around us. Um, I, I feel like the soundtrack of the virus may be ambulance siren hmm. because it it feels like it's quiet on the streets except for sirens passing by every ten or so minutes. I wouldn't. I I sometimes mute my phone um, when when they're passing by when we're having this podcast or recording, but today I may not, just so listeners can get a sense. Um, and then. You know, we're reading about the links to which our healthcare workers and paramedics are being stretched. It feels apocalyptic here in Manhattan, and yet it may be another month or longer before we actually hit the peak of what this thing is, is bringing to the city. Yeah, and there's uh, increasing evidence that um, the hardest hit parts of the city are now its poorest areas. Uh, these are the areas where people lived in more cramped conditions where many of our essential service workers uh, who are still reporting to work every day um, live uh, with their families. And as Dr. Kirkland, Dr. David Kirkland pointed out this weekend on Twitter, uh, the patterns of the virus do not appear to be random. It's, it's becoming clear who is being hit the hardest right now. Yeah, it's the folks with the least capacity to shoulder more burdens and more trauma. So... Uh, we decided to bring our interview back to New York City today to talk to a teacher who is in consistent communication with the students and families in his classroom here in Harlem. Ruben Brosby is a third grade teacher in Harlem, New York City. He's passionate about social justice-oriented, project-based learning and finds that young people can make the best out. He's a co-founder of Teach Resistance, an online community for social justice and anti-bias elementary educators. He's the founder and host of Teachable Moments, a live storytelling event featuring stories by former and current educators. And he also writes about teaching and equity for the educators room and his personal blog, RubenBrosby.com. That's R-U-B-E-N-B-R-O-S-B-E.com. And you can find him uh, on Twitter at Blogsby, B-L-O-G-S-B-E. Ruben's been talking about what remote learning is like for him um, and the opportunity gap that he's seeing between rich and poor in New York City. So we're looking forward to hearing about that. So welcome to the podcast, Ruben. Thank you. It's an honor to join you all. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, uh, so how are you doing, Ruben? Uh, I think we share, um, uh, I'm not sure where exactly in Harlem you are, if that's just your school or the neighborhood you're living in, but uh, I'm in East Harlem, 
uh, now, kind of locked in uh, the house. Um, but how are things holding up? How, how are things around the neighborhood? How is life? How are you doing? How are you holding up? Uh, how's it going? Um, I, I feel overall pretty calm. I'm, I'm lucky that I just have my, my work to keep me busy. Um, I have kids to take care of, and so I'm pretty much just sticking to my routine. I, I leave the house a couple times for a walk, just get some air and some exercise. Um, if I try to wrap my head around what's actually going on on a, a larger level, um, it can be pretty stressful and overwhelming. And I think also if I try to wrap my head around what's going on at work, that can feel overwhelming as well. So I kind of just try to keep my 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 focus on one thing at a time and what's right in front of me. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds about right. So tell us about what teaching is like right now. And, and let's start with your personal experience. So what what is like a typical weekday for you? Today was Monday. Maybe just walk us through your Monday. Yeah. So um, I, I start the day with a, a video call on Google Classroom. Um, using Google Classroom, we have a Google Hangout, and we start the day with a, a morning meeting, um, which I have all my third graders um, at the school are invited to. This morning, we had eight third graders join the call out of 33. Mm -hmm. um, so we check in. We use a tool called the Mood Meter, which is um, out of a program called Ruler, which comes from uh, Yale University. They have a, a center for um, the child psychology there. I'm blanking on the exact name. Uh, mm -hmm. um, the Ruler program is a social-emotional learning uh, program and so we have this mood meter that we used to check in and I just kind of ask the kids how they're doing and we say our school's power pledge which is kind of an, an affirmation um, that connects our school's core values and I just kind of create space for checking in about questions about the work that we're supposed to be doing or about the world in general so that lasts like 15 to 25 minutes depending on how long we're waiting for kids to get on the call um, the rest of the day is pretty open, except for I have a video call in the afternoon um, focused on math, uh, mm -hmm. math content and math instruction. From the time that I'm not on the video call, um, I'm either assigning work or giving feedback to work that's been turned in. Um, but mostly I'm trying to get in touch with families who either haven't connected to Google Classroom yet, or their kids are connected, but they're not really engaging consistently. Mm -hmm. So most of my time is texting, emailing, uh, or calling by phone or Google Hangout, just trying to get in touch with as many kids as possible to try to get them engaged. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to hear more about that. I do want to chime in as a parent just to give you a, a, I mean, I know you're hearing from parents all the time, but my own experience, you know, I have a son in third grade and another son in sixth grade, and they're in two different schools. And my third grader is at Hamilton Heights, the school you used to teach at. Um, and he is very tech savvy. I don't know how he got it. He's just a 
kid who has his interest and he figures things out. And that's great. Um, and he is kind of able to self-direct and use uh, my wife's iPad and fool around. And it seems like his school has also figured out, you know, his teacher is very conscious of not wanting to add stress to the kids. Whereas my sixth grader, you know, he has multiple teachers and multiple classes. And in the first week or two of class, he felt like it was, it would, he's a very anxious, he has a lot of anxiety and it was just causing him to like feel more and more anxious and he was not liking it. Um, I guess it's only been a week and he, uh, his English teacher had Google Hangout and he would, he did not want to get on it because he was like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to go there. And, and yet like he, he's kind of telling people in the class, Hey, tell your friends to come on the Google Hangout. But he's, he's like, that's not, that's not what I want to do. Um, and I think the teachers at his school have figured out that they were assigning too much work. He, he was telling me like at first they were assigning classwork and homework and he's like, it's all homework, you know? So, um, he just, we kept telling him, you know, he's a very conscientious student and we kept telling him it's, it's just do what you want to do. You know, right now we're not concerned about you falling behind, whatever that means. Um, that's not, you know, your particular issue. Uh, we're just trying to keep his anxiety levels down. And so I wonder um, part of it, you know, coming from that experience is I know there are technological barriers. I know that there are access barriers, but I'm wondering if there's this issue of this anxiety and how you try to set up your classroom to lessen your students' anxiety. How, how is that coming up? Like, are, are you encountering that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, hearing that story, it just, makes me really sad to think about the ways in which we're across the system piling work on our our kids' shoulders. And for a lot of these kids, that that work has also been piled on their their family's shoulders, Um, not just middle, like, so um, I just wish that we could have a little bit more of a clear consensus um, across schools, but also within schools like my own, about like how we're we're going about this. Um, for me, like personally, I know that I'm struggling to kind of balance taking care of my own anxiety and and my own making sense of what's going on in the world and doing my work effectively. So I can't imagine what that would feel like as an eight year old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the morning check-in is one that, I mean, the video calls the morning and the afternoon are essentially, I think, for one, they just kind of give me a purpose. And I, I can kind of like, uh, empathize with your son's teacher that he's probably, they are probably just looking for a way to connect with kids because it's yeah. what we want to do day to day. And when we get to connect yeah. with the kids by video call it's it's a semblance of like oh yeah this is yep. this is why i'm doing what i'm doing yep uh, and i, I, I want to just step in real quick sure so, so just to say um in case it was interpreted this way I, I i wasn't 
saying it to criticize the school because they are just trying to figure it out, right? And oh, absolutely. Um, and they, you know, and a lot of the issues we're talking about are issues that exist, whether we have remote learning or not, they're just being amplified now. But to, right. to, to the school's credit, on Friday, one of the teachers called my wife and, um, and said that they're calling all the parents and checking in and that they realize that they've, uh, they need to make some adjustments and that in some cases they were assigning too much work. So when my son heard that, he was very, very happy, very relieved. And so right. they're adjusting. Schools are adjusting right now. It's a difficult time. Um, so sorry, I just wanted to interject to make sure I, I clarified that. No, I appreciate that. I think that especially um, in households where there are, are current and former educators, there's a little bit more understanding and patience um but it's yeah we're all making it up as we go along and i think i say that to be saying that we all need to be patient but also to be kind of i don't know it makes me feel sad and and a little ink and actually very angry to be saying we're making this up as we go along but the stakes feel so high mm. and my friend who did a private school and their version of making up as they go along is they're starting very small, very low impact, and then they're going to grow from there. Whereas I feel like my experience and it sounds like um, your son's experience was let's start with normal school, whatever that means in a remote learning right. context, and then we'll tweak it from there. And I just well, kind of wish, yeah. I wish we had all taken a lot more um, time like breathe and think and kind of move a little bit more cautiously and with more care yeah what is uh what have been the your what has been your experience and you've tweeted about this a little bit in terms of getting families access to your uh online learning environment how, how are they how have they been doing able to Well, that has been my, like I said, my primary focus. And, you know, today was day one of week two, and I still feel like I have a lot of work to do because we first have, at my school, roughly a third of our third graders live in transitional housing. Um, and they none of the kids in shelters had internet. And then on top of that, there were a number of kids who were being denied internet by Spectrum because their families had outstanding bills. Mm. So now the city has started to make the movement on that. But that's roughly a third or more of my kids who just, there was no way to even get them connected, just logistically speaking. One of my students, he and his mom went to his older sister's home to access the internet. So, so, Ruben, yeah, Abram dropped off the call and he was recording it. You know, he is okay. recording it. So yeah. I think we're going to have to back up a little bit. Um, okay. I'm going to ask the question again because I actually want to hear those statistics that you said about your your classroom again in terms of how many live in transitional housing and and how many have access to. Um, uh, internet. So 
Ruben, would you mind if I just ask that question again? Oh, no problem. Go for it. Sorry about this. No, All right. Okay. So in terms of the online learning, what has been your experience with getting families access to the material through device, through internet access, and through just whatever kind of support they need to be able to give their, their third graders? Well, the experience has been really challenging and frustrating and at times even heartbreaking for me because the fact of the matter is that um, the community I serve in Central Harlem just doesn't have the same access to internet or to like comfort level with technology as other families that I'm seeing online. And uh, roughly a third of my third graders live in transitional housing. And mm. up until this week, um, homeless shelters didn't even offer internet to the families living there. So that was a large group of my students who just had no way of accessing um, Google Classroom, which is the platform that we're using at my school. Mm. And then on top of that, I had a couple of families in the third grade who were being denied internet by Spectrum because they had outstanding bills. Spectrum mm. got some positive press because they were saying that they are going to give free internet to um, families with students, but it turned out they were only offering free internet for new customers, mm -hmm. not for people who had outstanding bills. Mm -hmm. um, thanks to some press by Chalky, um, that's hopefully changing as well, but it was just a lot of anxiety for me, and I can't even imagine what the families were going through. Um, yeah. I had one mom say to me, my son can't get on, so I guess I'll just bring the Chromebook back to the school. And I mm. just kind of sense this sadness and this heartache that she's going through because this is her youngest son. She really cares about making sure that he gets what he needs in terms of educational support. Mm -hmm. And he has an IEP, and they just totally feel um, left out by this rush to get online. Yeah, it's interesting because wow. what you often hear, uh, you know, in either groups of friends or, or educators, whatever, what you often hear is, well, you know, not all families value education the same. Not all cultures value education the same. And I think, you know, mm. the story that you're telling right now, right, is about people who very much value this resource. And yet, you know, the access is not. Uh, exactly there, right? Or in a, in a way where they have access to it, whatever their barriers to the regular package, right? Whether that's a, a bill from a while ago or a housing situation or, you know, maybe it's just about access to the building and, and putting cable in because, uh, you know, of an absentee landlord. There's a million situations, Right. Where uh, that, you know, we, right. we can't possibly foresee, but this crisis suddenly reveals all of them all at once. Yeah, I think it's definitely brought so much of the, the deep and wide inequities in there to these schools have just been really um, broken open and, and brought to the surface. You tweeted something about um, when we talk about resources, one of the resources that is inequitably distributed distributed, and I want to be a little careful about how we talk about this because I don't want it to come off as an attack on anybody. Right. Um, but you said sound pedagogy, right? So it's not right. just about the devices, but it's about the approach that we're taking to learning. And it's true 
that as educators, we know that there are kind of traditional maybe uh, means of, I, I'm putting it in quotes because not all traditional education is bad, but there are ways of educating kids that are less effective than others. And yet educators will continue to repeat the less effective ways of doing things uh, if that's the way they were educated and they haven't had an opportunity to learn something different. I guess that's right. That's um, maybe one way of, of, of framing it. So, you know, what are you seeing in terms of uh, pedagogy? And I want, <laughs> I'm being, we're all employees of the Department of Education here. So, I'm, full disclosure, I'm, I'm, I'm being delicate about how we talk about this. And I, I guess I'd like you to talk about it as much as you can through your personal lens. Like, yeah. How are you approaching this? in terms of pedagogy, and what are you trying to avoid? Well, I think where that tweet was coming from in part is that I kind of, online I'm connected to this community of educators that kind of share a certain philosophy, um, you know, grounded in, like, liberatory pedagogy and just trying to, you know, ground our practices in, in pedagogy that's culturally relevant and sustaining and a variety of other kind of philosophies um, that are more rooted in kids' real-world experiences and trying to make sure that their learning is meaningful. Um, and in the day-to-day -day work that I do, um, working in a school that's on the state uh, list for, I think, CSI stands for, gosh, I can't remember what that acronym is right now. Um, continuous school improvement, I think. It's basically, um, it's the list you don't want to be on because it means that your test scores have been failing. Um, and the culture of our school and a lot of schools like ours that um, not coincidentally serve um, poor black and brown kids, but the, the pedagogy is focused on getting those test scores up. Mm -hmm. um, and in my experience, that pedagogy tends to be very narrow. Um, it doesn't always. There are ways, I think, to um, prepare kids for the test that are also, in one way or another, culturally relevant to same. But in, the, in my ideal world, um, you could just really disconnect the, the classroom from the, the high-stakes test altogether. But my point is just that I think schools that feel that kind of pressure, um, that pressure didn't go away, even though the test went away. The pressure is still about like maintaining a certain level of quote-unquote rigor. Mm -hmm. um, and rather than acknowledging that what we're going through is like an enormous disruption on every level, we're trying to continue as if, you know, our job hasn't changed. I mean, we're obviously acknowledging that the, the tools we're using have changed, but with regards to content and curriculum, we haven't really made yeah. any major adjustments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, last week we talked to uh, a professor of education, Becky Tarlow, and about what the purpose is, yep. you know, and, and when the, when schools have this pressure to uh, that it has high high stakes attached to it to raise test scores it can be 
very, very difficult to unlearn all the behaviors that go with that, even in the midst of a pandemic. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it occurs. My approach to yeah. it is, oh, sorry, go ahead again. I was going to say, it occurs to me that you have to have something to to replace that model with. And I think I heard you say it. I think I heard you say that culturally responsive and sustaining education is the kind of uh, pedagogy we should be embracing and figuring out how to um, amplify using the technological tools we have. Um, but. I think in the absence of feeling like I can really do something different, I'm going to always fall back on my defaults and how I was taught. And, and then it comes down to just the relationships and the, and the learning community, right? Can the learning community right. as a community grow? Right. And I think that my goal is first and foremost is to provide Stability and communion for the kids, mm-hmm. and that's why for me, just getting everyone connected to Google Classroom is such an urgent need. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that when the day-to-day learning in a regular classroom is disconnected, that's that's a real lost opportunity, and it's bad. But when you're teaching a pandemic, and now we're we're still like this could be an opportunity to teach kids about about mutual aid or what does it mean to be a part of a community? What are some ways that we can mm-hmm. help out in our family, in our building, in our neighborhood? There's so many opportunities for us to use this moment and to help kids feel less afraid and to feel empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like when we teach about whatever hardcore or Pearson is giving us without an Lack, they lack next history. Like that's a missed opportunity. But now we're in this like earth-changing historic event, and to really ignore that is, I feel like, an even larger. Maybe not. I don't want to compare. It's just it's a part of the same um, problem. I think. Mhm. Yeah. Um. Ruben, is there anything else you want to add about what people should know uh, about what teaching is like right now or what your families are facing? Anything else that you've heard from families that you think it's important for for folks out there to know? I just hope that we can all be really patient with one another. Um, I want us to be honest about what's going on, but not at the... I think you've been very gracious and and reiterating that, like, you understand what teachers are going through. So when the, the chancellor tweets out pictures of how well remote learning is going, that kind of hits me the wrong way. But at the same time, I still feel proud of what um, my families and I have accomplished over the last week. I just know that there's a big gap between what we're experiencing and what other schools are experiencing. So I just, um, I hope that we can learn some lessons from this uh, and that, we can figure out how to build a system that doesn't create two very different, two like many different educational experiences that are segregated by by race and economic status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before you let uh, before Absolutely. we let you go, I, I want to ask what we um, ask uh, pretty much every guest on the show, and uh, and that's what's bringing you a sense of calm in the midst of this crazy storm. Bringing me calm is reading. 
uh, reading and walking around my neighborhood. It's the mm-hmm. walks that I take um, when I can um, successfully, like the morning walks, especially when it's quiet outside. Those help me start my day in a calm way. And I've got a big book of uh, stories from New York Magazine, um, like an anthology. So that's been mm-hmm. a good way to de stress as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, uh, walks and reading, we, mm-hmm. we wholeheartedly endorse yeah. those two means <laughs> of achieving calm. For sure. Cosine. <laughs> hey, Ruben, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on. And, and, uh, I'm, I, I almost, I know it goes without saying, um, and you don't need to hear it, but thank you for, for everything you're doing for the students, uh, in your school. Yeah, thanks, Ruben. Thanks for having me, and thanks for asking um, really great questions. You're welcome. All right, take care. So let's end like a good radical, Sam. What's uh, one thing that you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? Um, I don't know. I, I'm just, <laughs> it is a sad time. And he, he, Ruben came back to his sadness and his anger. And at the end, uh, you know, he hopes that this experience crystallizes for everybody, the inequities in our system and that something is done about it. And these inequities are so much bigger than just his classroom or his school or the education system, uh, they're societal. And so I'm just present to that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. What about you, Abram? Um, yeah. I mean, sitting, sitting in the like failure, uh, on many levels to like provide what's needed for people at this time is tough. Um, I think what I heard, Ruben modeling that I really appreciated was a sense of starting with his own anxiety. Like, here's what I need for my own anxiety very early in the call. Like he said that. And like, I can't imagine what Mm -hmm. this like, you know, nine year old is going through right now. You know, Um, I mean, I'm sure he can imagine. Right. He's a teacher. He has some imagination about how kids are processing stuff. But I think that kind of humility and self-reflection to me stood out in his story. And so then even as he's talking about the practices and the and the kind of mental models around what what are we teaching for? What are we teaching to? Right? And if, you know, if these tests are not it, what is it? Right? Um the, that's the mm-hmm. same kind of self-reflection, right? And and my comment about like a, a community of learning, right? Um like that's I think what what um what I'm hearing from Ruben as the what people, what we need to be doing right now around our kids, um, and I and I think that mm. probably also means breaking down some of the uh, typical roles of parent and teacher and and you know whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know because it is different, you know you don't have vis- visual and physical supervision, <laughs> you know like you're gonna have to do some mm-hmm. some things different and and I don't pretend to know answers to that. Um, but I know that the path is that self-reflection and that self-collection, right? I- identifying, I'm feeling mm-hmm. some things here. You know, he mentioned the the ruler, 
the the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence yeah. um, ruler, um, which is this idea of like you walk into a school and you see this like quadrant and you put your like bitmoji like how you're how you're feeling right now or whatever, um, and like you know that that's the kind of tool where. Um, you know, having everybody put their how I'm feeling on the chart is one thing, but really engaging with everyone in the learning community about like, what do we do when people, when everyone comes in overloaded with crisis to their webinar, mm -hmm. right? They're not in a place of emotional intelligence to start working on their math problems or whatever. Um, and so, yeah. you know, how do we meet folks, kids and adults alike where, where they are, but grow together you know, and do better because really the potential for digital technology in these environments is massive. And we've been talking about the potential for decades. Um, and now's our chance. Mm -hmm. Now's our chance to make some real progress puzzling through some stuff. But I think we have to hold on to that hope and that vision of a learning community, learning and growing together. Yeah. You know, one thing I wish I had asked him about, uh, I, I've seen this come up in media in the media a bit and some stories about education during this time is there's a narrative that we're losing valuable time and that kids are falling behind. And on the one hand, I totally believe in the urgency of, of giving, of engaging kids because you don't get these days back. You don't get these years back. Uh, on the other hand, I have a real problem with the paradigm that's there is a, a an, an on time and a behind because right. um, it's, it's different for every child. Kids develop at different rates. It's, that notion of an on track or a behind is not part of what we know about child development. And, and so when you talk about getting kids in an emotional headspace for learning, you know, I think sometimes educators have a knee-jerk reaction that, well, if we spend time doing that, then we can't do the important stuff because then the kids will fall, fall further behind. But right now, it's so clear what is needed, what, what has to be in place, what the priority is, that there needs to be more of that emotional processing, uh, not less. And I think we're going to see this one starts back up in, in, you know, most likely here in September. Um, but we'll see when it is. But whenever school does start back up, there's going to be a tension there where educators are wanting to catch up, quote unquote, catch up. And if I catch up to what, right? I, I, I don't, I don't think that's the right way of thinking about this. I do think that part of what Ruben's talking about is slowing down, and you know, as he does with his mood meter, um, and just providing that community uh, and that that's essential before the hardcore academics can can take place and that we shouldn't see that as a cost because like he said there are so many learning opportunities right now that we could be providing for our kids if we weren't so focused on the paradigms that we're accustomed to about what matters and what's important yeah so i guess we should wrap up yeah. um i want to say to our audience is as we often do uh help us out by commenting on twitter checking out our webpage one other thing i want to um plug for you all is to give us a follow on apple Podcasts if you subscribe there or itunes um or give us a rating 
uh, or both, even better. It just helps to get the podcast out to more people. Mm-hmm. You know, we love that. We love it when people text us or call us or, or comment on Twitter and, and let us know that they appreciate what we're doing. Uh, it gives us a little bit of energy to go forward. And we also just want to know that the audience is growing if there's an interest. Like we, we do this because we think it's important. And so, you know, if you feel the same way, please do um, share. And also, like I said, get on those podcast apps and give us a rating or a follow. Yeah, the Apple one um, in particular so is uh, is like ninety percent of the recommendation algorithm. So five stars, right? Right. So especially there. So let's end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. The content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.